good morning, everybody. Good to see you. Thanks for being here. I'm glad you're here. I hope you'll stay to the end. If you got a Bible, let me hear you grab it and turn in your Bibles. Let me hear your pages turning to the book of Romans and the 13th chapter this morning. That's where we're going to find ourselves in Romans chapter 13. I tell you what, this weekend reminds me <clears throat> of how long I've been here because this girl who was standing right here uh, singing on the worship team, I married her mom and dad. And now she's a freshman in college. And that's just amazing to me. So thanks for letting me hang around that long. Her mom was the easiest bride I've ever worked with in my whole life as uh, a wedding officiant. So that was a wonderful thing. Well, we are, uh, as you know, in this message series in the book of Romans called Unashamed. And what we're doing is we're working our way chapter by chapter through the book of Romans, not verse by verse, but chapter by chapter, looking at the main highlights. But as we open up our Bibles to Romans chapter 13 this weekend, we're going to look at Romans 13 in its entirety. That's a little bit different because we haven't done that so far. We've just picked out the main themes in each chapter. But we're going to look at Romans 13 in its entirety, and it's okay. I talked to God about this, and he said, you could handle it. And so... We're going to move forward doing that, but in order to get through that, we've got to dive right in. So, if you got your Bibles open to Romans 13 and you're able, go ahead and stand with me for the reading of the Scripture. I want to welcome everyone who's joining us online this weekend. We're so glad that you're here. Thank you for tuning in, and if you're local, we would invite you to come and worship with us in person so that you can get an even better feel for how wonderful we all are, actually. And so, we want you to come and meet us in person. And if you're a first-time guest, thanks so much. We want to give you an extra special welcome. Let's look at Romans chapter 13. Here we go. Everyone must submit himself to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except that which God has established. The authorities that exist have been established by God. Consequently, he who rebels against the authority is rebelling against what God has instituted, and those who do so will bring judgment on themselves. For rulers hold no terror for those who do right, but for those who do wrong... Do you want to be free from fear of the one in authority? Then do what is right, and he will commend you, for he is God's servant to do you good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword for nothing. He is God's servant, an agent of wrath to bring punishment on the wrongdoer. Therefore, it is necessary to submit to the authorities, not only because of possible punishment, but also because of conscience. This is also why you pay taxes, for the authorities are God's servants who give their full time to governing. Give everyone what you owe him. If you owe taxes, pay taxes. If revenue, then revenue. If respect, then respect. If honor, then honor. Let no debt remain outstanding except the continuing debt to love one another. For he who loves his fellow man has fulfilled the law. The commandments, do not commit adultery, do not murder, do not steal, do not covet. And whatever other commandments there may be are summed up in this one rule. Love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no harm to its neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfillment of the law. And do this, understanding the present time. The hour has come for you to wake up from your slumber because our salvation is nearer than when we first believed. The night is nearly over. The day is almost here. So let us put aside the deeds of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us behave decently as in the day, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and debauchery, not in dissension and jealousy. Rather, clothe yourselves with the Lord Jesus Christ and do not think about how to gratify the desires of the sinful nature. All right, there it is. You can be seated. As always, we ask God to bless the reading and the hearing of his word. Let's dive right in. We came together for worship last week, and we looked at Romans chapter 12, and I told you, if you were here, 
that Romans chapter 12 presents for us a transition of sorts as we go through the book of Romans, because you can say that the first 11 chapters of the book of Romans tells us what God has done for us. Primarily, it tells us about the salvation he offers us through faith in his son, Jesus. But when you get to Romans chapter 12, the emphasis shifts from what God has done for us to what God wants us to do for him. Or in other words, it shifts to the kind of life that God expects us to live. And as we looked at that last week, and Andrew mentioned this in his community meditation, our main text was Romans chapter 12, verses one through two, because if you don't get Romans chapter 12, verses one through two right, when it comes to what God wants from us or expects from us, then you're probably not gonna get any of it right. Let me just remind you of how it reads in my NIV Bible. Paul said, therefore, I urge you, brothers, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. Do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed, everyone say transformed, transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. And so we talked about those two verses from the perspective of submission and transformation. Submission in verse one, because he says that we're to offer our bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. And then transformation, because he wants us to be transformed by the renewing of our mind. But first you have to submit your life as a living sacrifice. And so it's powerful. It's a powerful uh, passage of scripture, even though it's just two verses long. And then Paul gets more practical about how we are to live lives that are pleasing to God. In verses three through uh, eight of Romans two, he talks about spiritual gifts. We need to discover our spiritual gifts and use our spiritual gifts to build up one another in the body of Christ. In verses nine through 21, he gets real practical about how we live a life of love every single day of our lives. Then you turn to Romans chapter 13, and Romans chapter 13, quite honestly, begins with something that is oftentimes very difficult for believers like you and me to accept. Because in the first seven verses of Romans 13, Paul talks to us about God and the government. God's perspective with regard to you and me and the government. In fact, If you're someone who likes to take notes, that's literally the first point of the message this weekend. So you can write that down somewhere because as we begin looking at Romans 13, we're gonna simply talk about God and the government. When it comes to living out the will of God and your attitude, my attitude toward the government, we have to begin with what Paul writes, rather, excuse me, in Romans chapter 13 and verse one, when he says this, everyone must submit himself to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except that which God has established. And then he goes on in verses one through seven to emphasize the point that governing authorities, no matter where you are, for us it's right here in the United States of America, governing authorities are from God. Now let me break that down and get a little bit more specific as we begin talking about this. In Romans chapter 13 and verse one, Paul writes these words, for there is no authority except which, that which God has established. And then again, in Romans 13, one, he says, the authorities that exist have been established by God. Romans 13, two, he says, he who rebels against the authority is rebelling against what God has instituted. Romans 13, four, 
He says, for he, whatever government official that you're talking about, for he is God's servant to do good. Again, in Romans 13, four, he says, he, whatever government official you're talking about, is God's servant. And then finally, in Romans 13, six, Paul says, for the authorities are God's servants. Now, what we see in Romans chapter 13, verses one through seven, is that no less than six separate times, Paul makes it clear that governing authorities are from God. And he even goes so far as to say that they are servants of God. Now here's the deal, friends. Paul wrote these words at a time when not only were the current rulers that he would have been familiar with in his life not followers of Christ, not worshipers of God, not believers in any sense, they were also for the most part terribly, terribly evil men who were incredibly cruel towards Christians. So Paul is not saying that all rulers are followers of God or worshipers of God. But what he is saying is that they are put in place by God. Now, I know again how difficult that is to hear in light of the reality of what we see around us related to our government and our government officials, at least so many of them. But this is what Paul is writing in Romans chapter 13, verses one through seven, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Remember, Paul later says in one of his letters to Timothy that all scripture is inspired by God. The more modern translation is all scripture is God breathed, which is the literal definition or meaning of the Greek word used for inspired. And so what we have to remember in order to really be able to accept this, what we have to remember and hang on to is the biblical truth that God is sovereign. And what that means is that God is always at all times, in all circumstances, in absolute and complete control over all things, and there's nothing, everyone say nothing, nothing that ever takes God by surprise. Now, do we always understand God's sovereignty in the day-to-day moments of life? I can't speak for you, but I don't hesitate in saying no. I don't always understand the sovereignty of God in the day-to-day moments of life. I don't always understand how God chooses to work or not work in his sovereignty in the day-to-day moments of life. But you know what? I'm not God, and you're not God. We don't have the same capacity of God. He is the creator, and we are the creation, and we're never gonna be able to understand this infinite reality and eternal reality of who God is. So part of living your life as a follower of Jesus is living with the faith, with faith, with constant ongoing faith in a sovereign God even when we don't understand what's happening around us. Is that difficult? It absolutely is. But that's the only option that we have. We have to remember that God is sovereign. 
and that God exercises his sovereignty oftentimes through world leaders. I'm sure that all of us here are for the most part familiar with the story, and we've talked about this so many times over the year, familiar with the story of Moses leading the Israelites out of Egyptian bondage. We know that story, it's found in the book of Exodus. I'm gonna put a single verse of scripture up on the screen. I'm gonna put up Exodus chapter 14 and verse four, and we'll talk about this here in a minute. We, we are also familiar with the story of how um, when the, Moses led the Israelites out of Egyptian bondage, they came to the Red Sea. And if you've seen the movie, The Ten Commandments, you know all about this, right? <clears throat> and uh, there was no way to get around. And so they saw the Red Sea in front of them. They saw the army of Pharaoh pursuing them from behind because Pharaoh had changed his mind about letting them go and was trying to recapture them. What are we gonna do? What are we gonna do? And then God, through Moses, did this incredible supernatural miracle where he parted the Red Sea and the Israelites were able to walk across to safety on dry ground as the army of Pharaoh pursued them, God closed the water in on them and destroyed them. We know that story. What we don't always know, if you don't really read the book of Exodus and understand it, is a little bit of the backstory of how that happened. And we see that, or we get a glimpse of that in Exodus chapter 14 and verse 4, because this is what it says. And this is God, by the way, speaking to Moses. And I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and he will pursue them, pursue the Israelites, but I will gain glory for myself. This is God speaking. I will gain glory for myself through Pharaoh and all his army, and the Egyptians will know that I am the what? Say it with me, Lord. So the Israelites did this. Well, what happened was the Israelites, after they left Egypt, were camped at a place called Etham. And that's where they were when God spoke these words to Moses. But he also as a part of this conversation with Moses, instructed him to have the Israelites turn back from where they were, turn back. So in essence, make a U-turn and go back toward Egypt and camp by the sea, that's the Red Sea. And so Moses did what God told him to do. After he led them out of Egypt, he turned back and they camped by the Red Sea. Now, why would, why would God give that instruction to Moses? Well, here's why. God wanted to give Pharaoh the impression that upon leaving Egypt, the Israelites didn't really know where they were going and that they were wandering aimlessly, not really understanding what was ahead of them because they were confused and because they were afraid. And if they were confused and afraid, then Pharaoh would think they would be vulnerable to recapture. But... We know what happened next. We just talked through the story. Pharaoh went after the Israelites. No doubt, friends, no doubt trusting in all the false gods, false gods, little g gods of Egypt to give him success. But we know what God did. He parted the Red Sea. The Israelites walked across on dry land to safety. When they tried to pursue them, the army of Pharaoh, the water closed in on them, and all of them were destroyed. And when that happened, God knew that there could only be one conclusion that day, and that one conclusion is that Jehovah God is the one true God. Amen. And so, what we see is the sovereignty of God at work in the life of a pagan ruler for the purpose of establishing without question and without doubt that there's only one true God, and that is Jehovah God. Somebody say amen to that. 
This is the sovereignty of God that we don't always see in the moment. This is the sovereignty of God that we oftentimes have to trust as we go through life in this world in ways at times that doesn't seem to make sense. And that's what we need to think about when we understand these words that Paul begins Romans chapter 13 with as he talks about God and government. He's not saying that governing authorities, all governing authorities are from God, but he says they are for good. And he makes it clear in Romans 13, four, when he says for he, talking again about government officials, it are, is God's servant to do good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword for nothing. He is God's servant and agent of wrath to bring punishment on the wrongdoer. See, here's the bottom line. Here's how we understand this. God has designed authority to be part of our world for the purpose of good. And when we fight against what God has designed for good, then bad things can happen in our lives. Now, having said that, gosh, I'm glad to get here now. Here's the disclaimer. Paul is speaking in general terms. Let me tell you what Paul's not saying. I tell you what Paul was saying. Let me tell you what he's not saying. He's not saying that there's never an evil ruler or a godless ruler. He's not saying you have to agree with all rulers. He's not saying you have to agree with all the government officials, whether they be on the local level or a state level or a national level here in the United States of America. And he's, he's not saying that you should ever ever do anything that would violate God's law because obeying God's law is always our first conviction. And that's what we have to hang on to. And we might need to hang on to that really dearly in the days to come, given the reality of the world that we live in, given the reality of the country that we live in today where so much of our government, at least from my opinion and my perspective, if I step out of the pulpit for just a second and talk to you just one-on-one, -on -one, often seems to relish in mocking God. This makes me think of the book of Acts and Peter and John who, if you remember the story, were going to the temple one day in Acts chapter three where they met a lame man who was begging for money. And I love this story. I, rem I memorized it when I was just a boy in the King James Version. Peter says, silver and gold have I none, but such as I have give I thee in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. Because I don't have any money to give you, but I'll give you something better. Rise up and walk. And the man did. And if you were like me growing up in church, you learned this song that went like this. He went walking and leaping and praising God, walking and leaping and praising God. That's the reality. It was an incredible miracle. And when that happened, as you might imagine, People came from everywhere wanting to know what happened, wanted to get an explanation for what happened, which gave Peter and John the opportunity to preach and teach them and talk to them about Jesus, which got them arrested and ultimately brought before the Sanhedrin, which was like the religious Supreme Court of the Jewish people. And the Sanhedrin told them, you are not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. That's what they said to Peter and John. And this is their reply in Acts 4, verses 19 and 20. But Peter and John replied, judge for yourselves whether it is right in God's sight to obey you rather than God, for we cannot help but speaking about what we have seen and heard. We're not gonna, in other words, we're not gonna obey you. Our conviction won't allow us to obey you. We have a higher calling than that. 
You go to Acts chapter five a little bit later, and now all the apostles have been arrested and they've been put in jail. But if you know the story, in fact, go home and read Acts chapter five today. They were supernaturally delivered from jail. Uh, the next morning, uh, the Sanhedrin sent for the apostles to be brought to them. They went to the jail and they found the jail empty. The door, the cell of the door was locked and closed, but nobody was inside. And the apostles who'd been delivered by an angel were in the marketplace. They were in the public square and they were preaching and teaching about Jesus. So now all the apostles are hauled in before the Sanhedrin and they're reminded, we told you not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. And Peter, who was the spokesman at the time, said in Acts chapter five and verse 29, we must obey God rather than men. In fact, read that with me. Let me hear everyone's voices. We must obey God rather than men. And we might have to really hang on to that, friends. So what do we take from this? If and when the governing authorities command you to do something that violates the clear instruction of God's word, you don't have to obey. Will there be a price to pay? Probably. But we obey God rather than men. But when the law of governing does not violate the authority of the word of God, the instruction from Romans 13 is that we obey. Don't mistake what I'm teaching you to mean that I don't have my own personal strong opinions about the state of our government, our government leaders, because I do, and I'm beside myself at times, honestly beside myself at times at the profound lack of wisdom and insight and oftentimes just simple, good old-fashioned common sense when it comes to ruling and governing, not to mention the morality of our country, which is so troubling, and direction of our country that and, and, and a government that, as I mentioned earlier, oftentimes seems to relish in openly mocking God. But I'm also committed to obeying the word of God to the best of my ability. And we all need to be committed to trusting in the sovereignty of God. So Paul talks about God and government in Romans 13 verses one through seven. Remember, as he's telling us what God expects from us, then we get to verses eight through 10. And if you like to take notes, write down this next to number two. Next thing God, Paul talks about is God and our relationships. And I'll look and I'll invite you to look with me back at Romans uh, chapter 13, verses eight through 10, where Paul writes and says, let no debt remain outstanding except the continuing debt to love one another. For he who loves his fellow man has fulfilled the law. The commandments, do not commit adultery, do not murder, do not steal, do not covet. And what other, whatever other commandment there may be, are summed up in this one rule. Love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no harm to its neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfillment of the law. All right, so now we see Paul talking about God and our relationships. And I'm just gonna, I'm just gonna spend a real short time on these verses. Paul basically tells us there that, that we need to, that this is all summed up. Everything God's telling us here, or Paul's telling us here, is summed up with the word love. And there are two things we need to understand about the way we're, that we're supposed to love our the people in our lives. And the first one is this. We have to understand that it's gotta be a commitment. We have, to have, we have to make a commitment. You and I, we have to make a commitment to love one another. Because loving one another is not always easy. But we have to make a commitment to do this. It's part of our faith. It's part of our obedience to God. Romans 13, eight, Paul says, let no debt remain outstanding except the continuing debt to love one another for he who loves his fellow man has fulfilled the law. For the sake of time, I want you just to write down this somewhere uh, related to Romans 13, eight. We need to make the commitment, all of us, to limit our obligations when it comes to our relationships by simply focusing on loving people. You know, that's what we got, that's gotta be first priority. So we limit our obligations 
when it comes to our relationships and our first priority is to love one another. Now, this is an interesting verse because all my life, the main application that people make from this verse is that you should never go into financial debt because Paul says, let no debt remain outstanding except the continuing debt to love one another. And people who are especially um, aggressive about believing that you, know, there's, you should never have any debt in your life will use this as their trump card. Personally, I think that's the misuse of this verse. That's my own personal opinion, and I don't want to argue with you about it after church, so because it's not important enough to argue about, okay? Uh, We have to understand the Bible does give us instructions about debt. Now, I'll tell you that I believe that the Bible never expressly forbids or categorically forbids the borrowing of money. I, I think you're wrong if you think the Bible expressly or categorically forbids the borrowing of money. What the Bible does tell us is not one good thing about going into debt. There's not one good thing that comes along with that. And that's really summed up pretty much in Proverbs 22, seven, where the proverb writer says, the rich rule over the poor and the borrower is servant to the lender. That's the reality if you're in debt. The rich rule over the poor and the borrower is servant to the lender. And being in debt can just paralyze your life when it comes to ever experiencing financial freedom. And so there are a lot of people who need to get a handle on that. But I don't believe that's the express first application of this verse when Paul says, let no debt remain outstanding except the continuing debt to love one another. I think the emphasis is just this. We need to make sure we love each other. When it comes to our our relationships, our first obligation is to love one another. And so let's just limit our obligations to that. Let's not make it more complicated than it is. You look at this same verse in the New American Standard Bible, and the first part says, owe nothing to anyone except to love one another. That's the responsibility. And that takes a commitment. It takes a commitment because oftentimes we're hard to love. I'm sure that I'm hard for some people to love and I'm sure you're hard for some people to love. And so it takes a commitment. That's what we have to understand. And love has got to be our first obligation because of all the things that love does. Because when it comes to relationships, love notices people, love encourages people, love instructs people, love warns people, love tells people the truth, even when it's hard to hear. And you can go on and on and on. So... We have to make this commitment. When it comes to God and our relationships, our first commitment is to love one another. The second thing here we have to understand is this, this, this commitment to love one another is really a new kind of commandment, a new kind of commandment. And I say that because Romans 13, 9 says the commandments, <clears throat> do not commit adultery, do not murder, do not steal, do not covet, and whatever other commandment there may be are summed up this, in this one rule, love your neighbors yourself. And then it says, love does no harm to its neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfillment of the law. Now, here's the thing. If you look at that, all of these commandments that he mentions, again, as he writes under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, have to do with the way we treat people. The first four commandments he mentions are literally commandments straight from the 10 commandments, straight from the 10 commandments. You can find those in Exodus chapter 20 and Deuteronomy chapter five. The fifth commandment, which was love your neighbors yourself, comes all the way from the book of Leviticus in the Old Testament, Leviticus chapter 19 and verse 18. And all of these are commandments that carry a sense of obligation because they're a part of the law. And so it's easy to look at at this instruction to love other people as an obligation because we wanna obey God's law. But what Paul is really teaching us here is that we shouldn't look at this instructions to love one another as an obligation. We should look at them as an opportunity. We, we, shouldn't, we shouldn't view loving one another, loving our neighbors ourselves from a sense of obligation. We should view it as from a sense of opportunity because 
the opportunity that love brings is almost endless. And so for believers, for followers of Christ, for people like you and me, you know, we need to limit our obligations when it comes to our relationships and make sure the first and foremost thing that we wanna do is love others. And we need to look at it as an opportunity, not an obligation. Just, just think about it like this. I mean, it, it, do you get more fulfillment out of something that you're doing out of obligation or something you're doing out of opportunity? I, don't, I think that's a no-brainer, right? If I feel obligated to love you, every time I see you, I'm gonna go like this. <sighs> but if I feel like it's an opportunity, then I'm gonna embrace you and I'm gonna be thankful for the connection and whatever takes place next. So Paul talks about God and the government. <clears throat> now he talks about God and relationships. And the final things he talks, thing he talks about is God and a sense of urgency. God and a sense of urgency, that's the third thing. And we see that in Romans 13, verses 11 through 14, which says, and do this, this loving your neighbor as yourself, and do this, understanding the present time. The hour has come for you to wake up from your slumber because our salvation is nearer now than when we first believed. The night is nearly over, the day is almost here. So let us put aside the deeds of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us behave decently as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and debauchery, not in dissension and jealousy. Rather clothe yourselves with the Lord Jesus Christ and do not think about how to gratify the desires of the sinful nature. Let me make this really easy. Paul says in verse 11, and do this, understand the present time, the hours come for you to wake up from your slumber because our salvation is nearer now than when we first believed. No one here doesn't understand it, the words, it's time to wake up. No one un doesn't understand that. All, all of us, husbands and wives, say that to each other in appropriate moments. It's time to wake up. It's time to get up. We all say that to our children all the time. It's time to get up. In a few minutes, you may need to say that to the person sitting next to you. It's time to wake up. <laughs> but when Paul uses these words here in Romans 13, He's, in, in verse 11, he's giving us a spiritual command. It's time from a spiritual standpoint for all of us to wake up. And the reason why is found at the end of verse 11 when he says, because our salvation is nearer now than when we first believed. What does that mean? Well, let me just make it real simple. You could say that there are three components or three dimensions of our salvation. There's a past component or dimension. There's a present com component or dimension. There's a future component or dimension. If you're a Christian today, if you're a follower of Jesus, the past has already occurred. It happened when you put your faith and trust in Jesus as Lord of your life. That happened for me when I was 10 years old. I, don't, you think, I want everybody just to pause for a moment. If you're a believer, and I want you to think about when that moment happened for you, okay? I hope it just brings back the most wonderful memory and the most wonderful experience. That's the past dimension or component of your salvation. But there's also a present uh, dimension or component of your salvation. And that's what continues to happen in your life right now. It's what's happening right now in this moment as we're here worshiping the Lord together. And I'm teaching you from the scriptures and you're growing as you, as you, as you hear and you learn and you think about how you can apply these different truths to your life. It's, as, it's what happens as, as we continue to experience the love and the grace and the mercy of God and the forgiveness of God when that's necessary in our lives and we grow in our faith. This is something that we all need. This present dimension of our salvation needs to be an ongoing thing. Look at these words from Hebrews chapter seven and verse 25. The Hebrew writer says this about Jesus. He's talking about Jesus. He says, therefore he is able to save completely those who come to God through him because he always lives to intercede for them, right? 
He always lives to intercede for them. What's that mean? Well, you know, when Jesus returned to heaven, the glory after the resurrection, he was seated at the right hand of the Father, right? He was seated because his work of providing salvation is finished. Literally, it's finished. That's why when Jesus hung on the cross, he said in John chapter 19 and verse 13, what what are the words he said? It is finished, right? No other work needs to be done. It's done. It's accomplished. Everything that's necessary for any man anywhere to be saved has been finished. But now there's this ongoing work because the book of Revelation tells us that every day Satan, who is our enemy, Satan, who is our accuser, makes accusations against you and me before God. But who is right there seated at the right hand of God interceding on our behalf? It's Jesus. He's actively involved interceding for us in our behalf. This is a part of the present reality of our salvation as we continue to grow in our faith. But there's also a future dimension or component to our salvation, and that's what will happen when we are fully redeemed and fully delivered when God makes all things new. Romans 8 and verse 25, look at these words on the screen. Paul says, not only so, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our body. This is what's yet to come. What's yet to come. And so there's a past, present, and future dimension or component of our salvation. Think of it like this. If you like religious words, then our salvation can be described like this. There is a sanctification, that's what happened when you were saved. There is justification, that's what happens as we grow in our faith and one day there'll be glorification. Sanctification, justification, glorification. And so here's Paul in Romans 13 saying, wake up. Wake up. It's a spiritual command because you are closer to the future dimension of your salvation than you've ever been before. You are, you are closer to the glorification that you're one day going to experience than you've ever been before. And you need to be awake because you need to be effective in your life as faith. Now, if Paul wrote those words with that kind of urgency when he wrote the book of Romans somewhere around AD 55 to 57, then how much more relevant is that for us today all these years later? If Paul believed there was a sense of urgency for Christians in Rome to stop wasting valuable time, then we should have an even greater sense of urgency to stop wasting valuable time today. And so I go back to Paul's initial command there in Romans 13, 11. He says, the hour has come to, for you to wake up from your slumber. And then he doubles down on why the urgency is so strong because he says, the night is nearly over. The day is almost here. So let's put aside the deeds of darkness and put on the armor of light. And then he makes things real simple by getting practical. He said, let us behave decently as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and debauchery, not in dissension and jealousy. Rather, clothe yourselves with the Lord Jesus Christ and do not think about how to gratify the desires of the sinful nature. I'm not gonna go through each one of those uh, individually because that's not an exhaustive list of all the ways you can sin. And we don't have time to talk about all the ways that you can clothe yourself with the Lord Jesus Christ. But I want you to think about something with me. Paul says, rather clothe yourselves with the Lord Jesus Christ and do not think about how to gratify the desires of the sinful nature. In other words, clothe yourself with the Lord Jesus. Put on Jesus and let him change the way you live. On the most practical level, He's already changed the way you live positionally because when you, when, when you were justified, when you put your faith and trust in Christ and, and, and allowed him to be the Lord of your life, 
then he changed you because he, he moved you from being someone that God looked at and, and saw covered in sin to someone God looked at and saw covered in the righteousness of Christ. That was your new position. Now let him change you practically. Live out that new position, that new, that new position every day with your words and your deeds and your actions and on and on and on. This is an imperfect illustration, but bear with me. I've had a lot of part-time jobs in my life since the time I was 14 years old. When I was in high school, <clears throat> when I lived in Houston in 16, 17, around that age, I, I worked at a men's clothing store. And this men's clothing store was unique because it was called King Size Clothes. Literally, I'm not making this up. It's not around today, but it was called King Size Clothes because it was a men's clothing store specialized in, in clothes for tall men and large men, okay? Oftentimes, Houston Oilers, but remember the Houston Oilers and now the Tennessee Titans, they would come in and buy their clothes there. The Houston Rockets, really tall men would come in and buy their clothes there. Um, but for the most part, it was just normal men who had a hard time finding clothes to fit. And I was working one night and there was a, a man who came in. He wasn't a tall man, he was a large man. He was a large man, never been in our store before. And uh, again, I'd like 16 or 17 years old. And uh, he had a really sour disposition. Um, he, he wasn't tall again, he was heavy, he was really large. Uh, and he wasn't very friendly. In fact, he was pretty rude. But all of that changed when I showed him all the different clothes we had in his size. I mean, we, we carried pants in that store that were, had a waist of 72 inches. And, and I, I just got such a, uh, it was such an unforgettable lesson for me because you know, somebody like me would just take for granted. You can pretty much go into any store and find what you need, but that's just not the case for everybody. And so I showed this man this section that had all of these clothes, all these pants, all these shirts, all these belts, all these uh, sport coats, all these suits. And because it was 1975, 1976, all these leisure suits. <laughs> Be honest, I want you to raise your hand if you ever owned a leisure suit in your life. Get it up there, get it up there. Oh, last night's crowd was way more honest than you guys are. And he, it's just like, it's just like in a heartbeat. Everything about his demeanor and his attitude just changed. And he looked at me and said, you know, I'm so glad I found this place because I've always just had to order clothes from a catalog. How many remember what a catalog is? And when they came, they almost always were the wrong size. You know, you can't try them on before you get them. And so I always end up sending things back and I never can find clothes in my size. And so he started systematically going into the dressing room, putting on new pants and new shirts and sport coats and jackets and all these things. And I'm telling you folks, his, everything about his demeanor and his attitude just changed like that. And I would say that we were friends by the time it was over because he'd been looking for something for so long and he could never find it until that moment. There's a whole lot of people in the world who are looking for something that they'll never find in the world. And how can it do anything other than give you, give you a sour and a foul and a negative disposition and attitude and perspective about life until you find Jesus? And you let him do for you what only he can do for you. And then you make your commitment to clothe yourself with Christ so that he can change the way that you live. And you recognize what a difference that made for you. And so you have a sense of urgency of trying to do any and everything you can to make sure Jesus does that for someone else. This is what Paul's writing to us about. 
This is what he's calling for in the last part of Romans chapter 13, when he basically says, and I'll paraphrase it with my own words, he's saying, wake up and stop wasting time because eternity is at stake. There are things that God wants to do in you, and there are things that God wants to do through you. So wake up for the love of God. Wake up and quit slumbering. Let me ask you this, and we'll come to a close, and the the band can get ready to come. Can you say with integrity this morning as I'm standing here talking to you that you recognize there's a genuine, ongoing transformation, spiritual transformation that's happening in your life? Or are you pretty much the same person that you were before you surrendered your life to the Lordship of Jesus? I feel a tension in my life every single day related to the fact of being a follower of Jesus living in a sinful, fallen, broken world. And a tension in my life from being the person God's called me to be to being someone who is a little bit too much like the world. Do you feel that tension in your life? If you don't, then you may have a really serious spiritual problem. Because it's easy for us to focus all of our attention on what God has done for us and forget about the fact that God has an expectation now of us. 